The last time we turned to John's Gospel, we looked at part of the build-up to one of Jesus' miracles. One of the seven signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. Now, Jesus performed other miracles, of course, but as John wrote this book, he chose to highlight seven of them. And by my reckoning, the one we began to look at last time is the sixth of those signs. The seventh sign is Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. I said we began to look at the sixth sign last time because Jesus hasn't actually performed it yet. In the first part of John chapter 11, Jesus was far away from the region of Judea. And he had gone far away because his enemies in the Judean city of Jerusalem had been trying to kill him. But even though Jesus was far away, a family he loved managed to get a message to him. The message came from two sisters, Martha and Mary, telling Jesus that his friend Lazarus, their brother, was ill. Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. That was emphasized for us. He loved this family, but shockingly, we saw last time, when he received the message that Lazarus was ill, Jesus stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus stayed where he was until Lazarus died. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. The disciples knew that would be a trip back into danger. Lazarus and his sisters lived in a village called Bethany, less than two miles from Jerusalem. Thomas was brave enough to say to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with Jesus. It was very brave and it was pretty realistic also. This trip could mean death for all of them. But they went and Jesus was very clear on what he was going to do. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we ended last time with Jesus declaring to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus is going to demonstrate in our passage this morning. He is about to perform a sign which reveals his glory as the resurrection and the life. But alongside the sign, Jesus is going to reveal something else. He's going to reveal the strength and depth of his love. As we look at this passage, we are able to say, see how he loves. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1078, or in the larger print Bibles, 1669. We're going to pick up at chapter 11, verse 28, and we'll read through to verse 54. Last time we heard Martha respond to Jesus with faith, even in her grief and her confusion over what was going on, she said, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And now, verse 28 tells us, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. This is God's word. And as we've said, it reveals the strength and depth of Jesus' love. First, in verses 28 to 37, Jesus' love is shown in his compassion and fury in the face of suffering and death. The compassion might not be so much of a surprise to us, but the fury probably is. Where does that come in? Well, earlier in chapter 11, Martha had come to meet Jesus. Here is the other sister, Mary. She comes to meet Jesus, followed by quite a crowd. Earlier we were told many people had come to comfort Mary and Martha in the loss of their brother Lazarus. And now when Mary goes to meet Jesus, verse 31 says, these people follow her. And what you and I need to know is that in this culture, people did not try to button up their grief. They didn't try to bottle it. They let it out. They wailed. They cried loudly. And as a mark of respect, they hired professional mourners to keep up the wailing. Historians tell us that even poor families would hire a couple of flute players as well to accompany the loud crying. Now, that might seem ridiculous and unnatural to you and me, but in this culture, as in some cultures today, it was a way to express genuine grief. Even the professional mourners were there to show the loss the family felt. So the scene we're looking at here is highly emotional. And Mary herself is clearly full of emotion. Her sister Martha has been a bit more restrained, but verse 32 says, Mary falls at Jesus' feet. 
In her grief, she drops to the ground in front of him. And look carefully at Jesus' response in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The way the NIV has expressed Jesus' reaction might give the impression that he feels sad. But the word translated deeply moved does not mean sad. It means angry. It tells us Jesus is incensed. He feels rage, wrath, fury. And the word that goes along with that here is troubled. Jesus is agitated. He is experiencing inner turmoil, the text tells us. Why? What exactly is Jesus stirred up and enraged about? What exactly is provoking this fury in him? Well, some people have looked at this and thought, Jesus must be angry at these people because they're overwhelmed with grief. He's just declared himself to be the resurrection and the life, and so he views their grief as unbelief. That's what makes him furious. Some people have read it that way, but I have to say, I do not think that's the correct interpretation. And the reason I don't think it's correct, well, there are two reasons. First, Jesus does not rebuke these people at all. And he was not backward in giving a rebuke when he felt it was needed. But he doesn't rebuke these grieving people. And secondly, Jesus is about to join in with their grief. Verse 35 is going to tell us he weeps himself. Does that mean Jesus is displaying unbelief? No, I don't think unbelief is the issue here. Jesus is angry about what has caused this grief. Grief that he himself is shortly going to participate in. Jesus is incensed and furious about death. Death is an intruder in the good world God created. Death is not the way things are supposed to be. And the Son of God knows that better than anyone. I think the theologian Herman Ritterboss is right when he says the emotion Jesus experiences here is the revulsion of everything that is in him against the power of death. Jesus is not furious at grieving people. He is furious at the evil that has led to their grief. Later down in verse 38, Jesus will feel this same fury as he stands before the sealed tomb. John Calvin says it is fury against the violent tyranny of death. Death is an enemy and Jesus is outraged at that enemy. And so Benjamin Warfield says, in Mary's grief, Jesus sees and feels the misery of the whole human race. And he burns with rage against the oppressor of men and women. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And we can certainly widen this out to include not just death, but all human suffering. Jesus hates it. It is an intruder. It's an enemy. Now we often point out that God can use suffering to teach us, to help us grow and mature. And that is true. But that does not mean suffering itself is a good thing. If it was a good thing in itself, then it would be present in heaven, wouldn't it? 
but it is not present in heaven and it will not be present in God's future new heaven and earth. The Bible is clear about that. The eternal future God has for his people is a future of no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. Suffering and death are enemies. They are intruders in God's creation and Jesus hates them. His Father hates them too. Sometimes we can speak of God, I think, too coldly and clinically. So we end up viewing God like a mathematician doing calculations to get the right outcomes. Or a scientist observing us with professional distance to see how we react under certain conditions. But here we have Jesus, God in the flesh. Everything Jesus does and says is making God known. And here, the truth Jesus is making known is that God is not cold and clinical. He hates the intruders that grieve us. He is not cold and clinical about suffering and death. He is furious about them. And alongside that fury, he has compassion for those who grieve because of suffering and death. He enters into our grief with us. And that truth is expressed so simply and so clearly in verse 35. Just two words, Jesus wept. Some people have wondered, why would Jesus weep over Lazarus' death? He's about to raise him from death. Why weep about it? But that misses the point. Jesus is surrounded by grieving people. And he feels compassion for them in their grief. He shares their grief. In verse 36, the other mourners are right when they look at Jesus weeping and they say, see how he loved him. Jesus did love Lazarus. He does love Mary and Martha. And in his love, he weeps with those who weep. God is not detached and distant. He's not above human suffering. He enters into our grief and pain. One of our carols says, He feels for all our sadness. And that's accurate. Later in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says, speaking about Jesus, and we read this earlier in a slightly different translation. Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness. And Paul Tripp explains what that means. Sympathy here means to be moved by what has moved someone else. Christ's sympathy is so strong that our problems become his. That reality is displayed here in the village of Bethany. As God in the flesh weeps with these sisters he loves. At the loss of Lazarus whom he loved. So Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 is a God-given explanation of John chapter 11 verse 35. Jesus' tears display his compassion. And do you see how his compassion goes together with the fury we saw earlier? Because he feels compassion for us, he is furious at the enemies that plague us. Because he is furious at those enemies, he feels compassion for those who suffer because of those enemies. And this really does apply to us also. It applies to you. Jesus' love for this family in Bethany is the love that he, the good shepherd, 
has for every one of his sheep. I know some of your problems and your pain. Jesus knows all of them perfectly. And he shares in your grief. And he hates those intruders, those enemies who come into our lives to steal and kill and destroy. But all of this raises an obvious question for us. If this is true, then why doesn't Jesus do something about it? It's wonderful that Jesus cares so deeply, but can't he do more than care? Can't he change this? Well, that's what the mourners are asking here in verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? There's no doubting the love expressed in Jesus' tears, but why didn't he intervene? Well, he's about to intervene. In the rest of this passage, Jesus' love is shown in his action to deliver us from suffering and death. Of course, what Jesus is about to do only affects this one family. But these verses are about much more than just this one family. One writer says, as Jesus strides to the tomb here in verse 38, he comes to break the spell that says death has the last word in this world. There's a place for anger at death. There's a place for grief. But now it's time to display God's power over death. When Jesus tells them to take the stone away from the entrance to the tomb, Martha objects in verse 39, Lord, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. She's right. After four days, the body has already begun to decompose. So what happens to human flesh, it decays. That's reality. But Jesus Christ is Lord over death. He's not Lord over death in theory. He's Lord over death in reality. He's Lord over the realities of human flesh. He is master over the process of decomposition and decay. When the Bible talks about resurrection, maybe we have questions about the practicalities of that. How can Jesus do it? Cells break down, bodies waste away. Well, here at the tomb of Lazarus, we're not told how Jesus does it. We're simply given assurance that he can do it. He's got it. The processes of decay will not put us and our loved ones beyond his reach. Look again how Jesus responds to Martha's very practical objection that the body's already decomposing. Verse 40, then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Just a little side note on Jesus' prayer here. Sometimes people have tried to simplify the idea of the Trinity by saying there's not really one God in three persons, there's just one person, and sometimes that one person takes the form of the Father, sometimes he takes the form of the Son, sometimes he takes the form of the Holy Spirit. The official name for that idea is modalism. 
You don't need to remember that name, but it's just the idea that God is one person who at any given moment takes one of three different modes, or he wears one of three different hats. Well, here, verses 41 and 42 show us that modalism is incorrect, because if there is only one person in God, who is Jesus talking to here? What the Bible actually teaches is that there is one God who exists always in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The reason Jesus can pray to the Father is because Jesus is not the Father. As I said, that's just a little side note. The main point here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has power over death. He calls Lazarus and Lazarus comes. No matter that his body had already begun to decompose, that is no hindrance to Jesus' power. I don't know how your imagination pictures Lazarus emerging from this cave he's been laid in. I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but Lazarus certainly doesn't come out leaping and dancing. At best, Lazarus shuffles out because he is wrapped with strips of linen with a cloth around his face. Jesus has to give the additional command to take off the grave clothes. Literally, Jesus says, unbind him. This is a wonderful day in the life of one family. Mary and Martha are reunited with their brother. It's a day they will never forget. But this event is a wonderful one for you and me as well. Because it shows you and me the power that will one day go to work for us too. And for our loved ones. We live our lives bound by the violent tyranny of death. Just like Lazarus was bound by those grave clothes. But the same voice that called Lazarus from the grave will call us one day as well. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and come out. So this event in Bethany, where one man was raised for a few more years of physical life, this is a signpost to the future resurrection we will all experience. This event in Bethany is here to, in a small way, help us get our heads around that future resurrection. But as wonderful as the resurrection of Lazarus is, as great a signpost as it is to the future resurrection, this passage has more to tell us about Jesus' action to deliver us from suffering and death. Because our resurrection to eternal life could not happen without Jesus' death. And it's in his death that his love is shown most clearly. It's not shown most clearly in his anger at suffering and death. Not even in his compassion as he enters into our grief concerning suffering and death. Those things are wonderful illustrations and evidences of his love. But Jesus' love is shown most clearly in his willingness to go down into death himself. To be bound by the cords of death himself. So we could be set free from death. And what this passage shows us is that when Jesus chose to leave his safe place on the other side of the Jordan River. When he chose to leave that place and come back into the red zone around Jerusalem. As he did that, Jesus was not only coming back out of love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He was coming back out of love for you and me. For all who will come to believe in him. Why would we say that? We say it because Jesus knew this act of love and compassion coming to raise Lazarus. Jesus knew it would seal his own death. 
and it did. It brought his enemies to the point of final, firm resolution in their plan to kill him. Yes, at the end of our passage, Jesus again retreats a little bit, but this time only a few miles away from Jerusalem. And he will soon head into Jerusalem to die. The build-up to his death begins in chapter 12. But here, look how John shows us it was Jesus' act of love for Lazarus and his sisters that brought Jesus' enemies to their firm decision. Verse 45, Therefore, in other words, because of what they had witnessed at Bethany, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. It was officially under the authority of the Romans, but day to day the Sanhedrin controlled what went on in Israel. So these are powerful people, around 70 of them. Powerful people, and they see Jesus as a very significant problem. Now as we read John's gospel, it might be hard for us to see why on earth Jesus would be considered a problem. He loves people, he does them good, but to the Sanhedrin, or at least to a majority of those in the Sanhedrin, Jesus is a problem because if Jesus goes on doing things like raising the dead, he will become so popular, the Romans will begin to notice. The Romans will get nervy that the Jews might rise up under the command of this new charismatic leader. And, verse 48, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, the Sanhedrin say. They're worried they're going to lose their authority and power. The Romans will take it back. So what's to be done? Well, Caiaphas is the answer. Verse 49, it's better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation perish. Caiaphas is a priest. He knows the concept of substitutionary sacrifice. In fact, every Israelite knew it. Every day, animals were sacrificed at the temple. Every animal sacrificed at the temple was teaching the truth that either we die or a substitute must die in our place. Every lamb, every bull hauled up on the altar was teaching that truth. Caiaphas is a priest. He knows the point. But his real passion is politics. And so Caiaphas takes that God-given concept of substitutionary death and he applies it to his political problem. We'll offer up Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice to save us from the wrath of the Romans. We'll kill Jesus so we can keep our political power alive. Jesus' death will save us. With Jesus out of the way, the Romans will leave us alone. That's what Caiaphas meant. But John tells us Caiaphas spoke far, far better than he knew or understood. Caiaphas' intention was deplorable and disgraceful, to kill an innocent man. Caiaphas had an evil purpose. 
but his words were at the very same time expressing the eternal loving purpose of Almighty God. That God the Son would come and offer himself as the Lamb of God. Sacrifice for God's people that they shall not perish but have eternal life. In verse 52, John tells us Jesus' sacrifice will not only be for Israel, but for the scattered children of God, for every one of the good shepherd's sheep, including those not from the sheepfold of Israel. That is the action Jesus took willingly to deliver us from suffering and death. Back at the beginning of chapter 11 when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick and then he waited two days before doing anything, we wondered what was going on. That Jesus would delay until his friend died. At the time, we said Jesus was working to a plan and a timetable his friends couldn't see or understand. It was a plan that ultimately was for his glory and their good. And in our passage this morning, when the other mourners see Jesus weeping and they ask, couldn't he have kept Lazarus alive? The answer is, of course he could. But by allowing Lazarus to die and then coming out of hiding to raise Lazarus, Jesus was taking one step closer to laying down his own life. So that Lazarus and his sisters and you and me could live eternally. By choosing to raise Lazarus from the tomb instead of healing him before the tomb, Jesus made himself unbearable to his powerful enemies. In the thinking of Caiaphas and his pals, the raising of Lazarus was the final straw. By raising Lazarus, Jesus sealed his own death warrant. And that was the plan. So when you and I want to see how Jesus loves, we look beyond his compassion and fury in the face of suffering and death, as wonderful as that is. When we want to see how he loves, we look beyond his action to raise someone up for a few more years of physical life. As wonderful as that is to see in Lazarus' case. And it is wonderful to see Jesus restore us or restore one of our loved ones to physical health when he chooses to do that. But to see the full strength and depth of Jesus' love, we look to his willing sacrifice of himself on the cross to deliver us from eternal suffering and death. We look at the cross and say, see how he loves. In your own times of sorrow and suffering, you need to know Jesus is full of compassion, genuine compassion. Jesus has more compassion for you than anyone else. And he is also full of fury at those intruders into the good world he created. You need to know that too. And best of all, you need to know he has taken action to defeat those intruders by trusting in his death for us you and I are unbound from the violent tyranny of death. Why doesn't Jesus intervene? He has intervened in the greatest way possible. And our last two songs help us focus on this divine love. Come and see, and then my Lord, what love is this?
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Shepherds watch their flocks at night, attending lowly sheep. Now within a cattle shed, a much stranger watch they keep. Today a Savior has been born, and He is Christ the Lord. Place within a humble trough, this baby must be adored. Pagan wise men from the east seek out the infant king. Trap the smiles behind them lie, and now all their reverence bring. They have come to worship him with spices and was long Savior. 